Hi, I'm Brian Lay. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Fisher. And this is the Diversify Our Narrative podcast. Welcome back to the November episode of the Dawn podcast. This episode is on standardized testing and not just all standardized testing, but the SAT specifically, because we know it's college uh, application season right now. And I thought it'd be great to just start the episode off with like, how is your testing experience with the SAT? Was it miserable? Did you do a prep training for it? Did you just go in blind and take it? I think I've always had the same perspective of the SAT, which is I don't like care. I just Uh I took it. I tried my hardest, but I wasn't going to kill myself over it. It wasn't going to be like a super intense study period for me. And I think that probably hurt me in terms of getting into schools. I scored okay. (laughs) I scored okay. But every time my counselor was looking at my score, they're like, did you take it more than once? And I was like, no, I did not. Like I knew I knew that that was like a a backhanded thing to say like your score isn't that great but I don't know I I wasn't going to press myself about it because I think in terms of standardized testing I've always had this viewpoint of I don't like I don't want to be this number that you're seeing I don't want to be the statistic Mm. but um you know in retrospect maybe I should have put a little (laughs) bit more energy in it I mean I tried my hardest when I took the test I just wasn't gonna try again and again what about you yeah I only took it I took the ACT um just because I just hear it's better for some reason. And so that's what I chose to do. And it was because my school paid for it because it was a low income school. So it was like everyone got to take the ACT, which was really nice. And I took it once. I liked my score. It was pretty good. And uh, that was it. But I never really studied for it. And then when I got to college, that's when I started hearing about people going to like, I don't know, like test prep after school or like um, uh, some of my friends volunteer to tutor like be SAT tutors and I'm like wow there's a whole like industry that I wasn't a part of but is very prevalent in like college applications. Totally I knew kids who would start studying for the SAT like freshman year of high school and I was I mean I was definitely like a, a student that cared a lot about my schoolwork but that could never have been me. Yeah. I um I rather put my energy into what I was learning in my classes than the SAT. Yeah. Well, great. So let's get started by defining what standardized testing is, because it's not just uh, college admissions tests. And then we're going to hone in on what we're talking about. So a standardized test is any test that requires every test taker to answer the same set of questions in the same way, scored against the same criteria. It's literally just testing that's not different for different people. Right. And a standardized test can look like a multiple choice test or a true and false test, which is the most efficient form, especially cost efficient form. But it could also look like symphony auditions or a driver's test. It doesn't always look like your stereotypical SAT. And then in contrast, a non-standardized test would look like an open ended essay where there is no questions that ask, you know, specific questions to fill out on a rubric. It's I think essays can be standardized if there's a rubric involved, but a college entry, um, college entry essays, I wouldn't consider standardized. Yeah. And like, that's a really interesting point because I definitely didn't think about, you know, auditions or uh, practical tests as standardized tests, but they are standardized because everyone plays the same excerpts in a symphony audition or uh, whatever. And then like when you're driving, obviously everyone's trying to be judged on the same thing otherwise that'd be horrible um but yeah so what are some common standardized tests that you may face as a student there's a lot of achievement tests that uh, classes use throughout the the semester or year Um, so these are exams that just track how much or how well you learn the material and state achievement tests are basically the mandated tests that create that states create and administer in order to receive federal funding. So like I took the STAR because I was uh, a, a Texas student. Right. The Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1994 requires standardized testing in public schools. And then the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001 furthered ties to public school funding towards standardized testing. Right. And so like 
earlier I was talking about I took the star in Texas and the tests will differ across different states. Uh, so one example is the Terra Nova, which is a series of standardized tests in the U.S. designed to assess K through 12 student achievement in reading, language arts, mathematics, science, social studies, vocabulary, spelling, other stuff. Um, and that's published by McGraw-Hill. Yeah, and like you said, Terra Nova isn't used by all of the Department of Defense um, dependent schools. The state of California uses the test that's part of the CAT 6 edition, so the mm -hmm. California Achievement Test. And the CAT series of tests had been, had been available in many of the U.S. states um, before they began developing standardized-based tests as part of the overall testing movement that was pushed in the early 2000s, which was tied to the No Child Left Behind Act that we have mentioned before in the podcast. Mm. Brian, what was your experience with standardized testing K through 12? You mentioned the STAR test, but do any memories come up for you, good or bad? What I remember from elementary is, so back then they were called benchmarks, which was very utilitarian because it's like, <laughs> okay, cool. Now you're just calling us like products. Um, <laughs> But yeah, we had benchmarks and I remember those taking like five, six, seven hours, like sometimes the whole day. And I would just sit there after I was done because you just had to. And then when everyone else was done, you could like quietly talk uh, and eat snacks, but you couldn't <laughs> be super loud because everyone else was doing their benchmarks. But yeah, not super fond memories. I never thought they were particularly challenging or that they reflected what we were learning um, especially when we got to like middle school like sometimes they were just completely unrelated to what we were learning and it was just like to do what the state asked you to do yeah no you're totally right I remember the cat test I think I don't know if my memory is super clear but apparently there was cat test in California so I guess I took them I also remember taking something called the star test but I'm assuming it was a different one than what was being produced in Texas, but maybe they were the same thing. No, I do. <laughs> you were taking the state of Texas <laughs> achievement assessment. I guess not. You're right. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they just threw that in there for Yeah, fun. maybe. <laughs> just to show how much better you were than Texas students. No, you're right. Okay. Did not like break down that acronym. I thought it was just like STAR, STAR <laughs> test. Got it. Um, okay. So I wasn't taking that, but I do remember a test called the STAR test. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm making that up. But I do remember it being very math and reading and writing based. There wasn't a lot of social studies or I think maybe there was a science test every once in a while. But history wasn't really tested, I feel like. Or if, if it was, it was very low on the scale of importance for testing. Yeah, yeah. But moving into the standardized exams that college students face post-grad, um, there's the GRE, which is the admissions test for graduate school. There's the GMAT, which is an admissions test for business school. There's the LSAT for law school and the MCAT for medical school. Yeah, you've probably heard of a lot of these. Um, so like the SAT and like other standardized tests, there are multiple parts. The GMAT, for example, has four parts, a multiple choice section and essay section, both about analyzing arguments. Then you have a section about understanding data and then a section on synthesizing information from different sources. So things you might expect, like soft skills and hard skills you might need in the business world. And in contrast, you have the GRE or the general test for grad school, which has three parts, one on verbal reasoning, one on quantitative reasoning, and one on analytical writing. And uh, these make sense because these are more... Uh, these are the skills that you need to get, you know, like a PhD in something and do research. Right. And then there's the MCAT and the LSAT. And the MCAT is a seven-hour exam, not including breaks. It has four sections, critical analysis and reasoning, chemical and physical sciences, biological sciences, and psychological and social sciences. And it's definitely one of the most intense exams because you're trying to get into medical school. So I suppose that makes sense. And then you have the LSAT, which is also really difficult because it's required for law school. Once again, I guess it makes sense. These are very prestigious places to go, prestigious careers to have. Mm -hmm. And there's five sections for the LSAT, um, but the main three, three themes are reading comprehension, analytical reasoning, and logical reasoning. Yeah, and when you're applying to these programs, whether it be like grad school or med school, it's super competitive because you're competing for like the top of the top students. 
Um, so you're probably sending these schools to 20, 30, 40 schools to try and get into one program. Um, and when each school has a separate fee to submit your test score, you can easily rack up tens of like thousands of dollars in expenses. Um, and you might not even get into med school. Like some people literally spend like $2,000 and then they end up nowhere. And it's super sad. And it's a whole like, I don't know, industry scheme. Yeah, that's a really sad thought, spending the money and not being able to get in. And then even when you're done with a super expensive standardized test and you've been in, you've been accepted into the school, um, or you're not done, basically, you're not done with the standardized test when you've been accepted in the school. If you're a law student, you eventually have to take the bar exam and the bar exam takes place over two days and it occurs twice a year. Yeah. And our last deep dive is in medical school. So there are a number of tests you have to take after your first year, second year. But one of the last ones you have to take is uh, before you get into your residency is the United States Medical Licensing Exam, which is a three step examination for medical licensure. It measures an, your ability to apply the skills before uh, you're taking care of patients. So basically just making sure you're safe and effective at patient care. And these examinations are really expensive. They've received a lot of criticism. As of 2020, for the step one, it costs $645, $645 for step two, and $895 for U.S. students, uh, which is just, it's and it's even more expensive for international students. So it's just uh, a lot of money you're spending that you probably don't have. Right. And these tests are super expensive. And then let's remember that these students, especially medical students, are taking on tons of debt. And this is a classes issue, but the tests are also a major point of contention for other reasons. On the one hand, the standardization is considered by many to be a fair and objective method of assessing students' academic achievement. There is no favoritism or bias. However, it is also what goes on behind the scenes that needs examination. Yeah, so the biases that are present are when the test makers are creating questions, phrasing answers, choosing the content you're being tested on. It's even present when, you know, they're choosing what score is a passing score. They're the ones that decide what level of proficiency is a proficient. So the test makers decide so much of, of what is tested on. Totally. And that's the core of today's episode. We'll be exploring how college admissions tests like the SAT or the ACT have changed over time and what problems they may present based on everything behind the scenes of a test. And I think we've talked about this with textbooks too. You know, there's always something going on behind the scenes that we need to examine or just think of it in a systems way. Yeah. Okay. I have one last example for a standardized test. You may not have thought about it, listeners, but um, psychological tests like the Myers-Briggs 16 personalities tests. Do you know your 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 type? I don't know the numbers or like the letters. The sorry. letters. I know that I am the advocate. I'm which, the advocate. Oh my gosh. <gasps> it's Ryan, a, I feel so connected <laughs> to you right now. <laughs> it's the INFP. That's the, those okay. are the letters. INFP. I like saying I'm the advocate better, but um, no, I no, that's that's I like that. Wow. I, I found oh, no. that out last year. INFJ, I mean. Because I was so I was an INTJ for the longest time and then I switched my T to an F during college. You just switched it or you took it again? <laughs> no, I, I took it so many times and then like um it just started consistently changing to INFJ and I was like, Wow, this is this is the new me. I remember my friend like made me take it and then I got the result that I got and she's like no that's not you that's not you <laughs> I'm like okay <laughs> okay I guess if you say so wow um, what a coincidence I honestly like am kind of not surprised I feel like I I was expecting you to be the advocate but also I don't know why I was expecting that I guess I'm being my friend right now Maybe, it's like I don't telling know. who you are awesome um okay part one what is standardized testing Okay, so there wasn't always the SAT or ACT. During the late 1800s, elite universities held their own exams to judge college readiness. And this makes sense because there wasn't a lot of schools and there weren't a lot of students at the time. But to streamline the admissions process once more students started to apply to college, the leaders of these elite universities came together to create the first 
college board exams in 1901, which is not the SAT. Yeah, and these exams were taken by fewer than a, a thousand applicants. It covered nine areas, including history, math, physical science, languages, and more. This is not how it is today. There's three sections on the SAT or four sections in the ACT. And with this new standardized test that was being used at the nation's most elite colleges, the test preparation industry emerged. Yeah, totally makes sense because people want their children to do well on tests if they can afford it. Um, So they would hire a tutor. And in the 1920s, which is only 20 years later, the focus of admissions tests shifted from assessed learned material to gauging innate ability. In other words, it shifted from memorization skills that were focused in grammar school to something closer to aptitude, which is a really mixed uh, bag of a word. And it also just became about how fast you could figure things out. And the idea came out of something that sounds pretty admirable. It was a way to find those young men who were smart but couldn't afford a prep school education or a private tutor. Um, But the operative word here is men because women were not allowed in higher education back then. Yeah. And the idea was also influenced by the increasing use of IQ tests, uh, which is another standardized test. So the Army Alpha test was administered to recruits in World War One, and this trend of testing aptitude was, uh, well, it led to the College Board commissioning the development of the SAT. The commission hired Carl Brigham, a Princeton University psychologist. And Brigham was an interesting man. Um, interesting is one word, and racist is another <laughs> word. Um, Carl Brigham was a racist and eugenicist, and he sat on the advisory council of the American Eugenics Society. Um, When he assessed the IQs of World War I military recruits, he openly stated that immigration and racial integration was dragging down, in quotes, American intelligence. Nevertheless, the College Board decided to choose this man as the leader of college admissions testing. Right. And it's pretty clear that the goal wasn't as admirable as equity or equality at least not for Brigham, but also for College Board because they chose this man when they could have chosen anyone else. Uh, But we'll dive deeper into that later. So Brigham, this very mean guy, created the SAT, or as it was called back then, the Scholastic Aptitude Test. And he argued that the test predicted success in higher education by identifying test takers with higher intellectual promise rather than memorization skills. Uh, But then later in his book, A Study of American Intelligence, he also stated that he created the test to uphold a racial caste system and and prove that white Americans were superior and smarter to black Americans. Yeah. So its explicit goal was to exclude black Americans from higher education in order to preserve white intelligence, in quotes, once again. You can imagine with a goal like that how questions may be chosen or phrased in a way that favors white Americans from those higher socioeconomic status. So again, we'll dive into the specifics in the next section. But basically, if your goal is to prove something with these tests, (laughs) they're going to be geared in that direction. Um, And there was a bit of prioritization in socioeconomic diversity, just to be fair. Uh, even if it was only a fraction of a percent. So in 1934, James Conant and Henry Chauncey used the SAT to identify students fit to receive scholarships for Harvard University. Uh, They basically targeted students outside of the Northeastern private school system uh, that were just as smart, but also white and also men. Right. And it's also, I guess, here a point to bring up that we'll talk about later as well is like the standardized test is going to affect people's scholarship money. Mm-hmm. And here, obviously, it's white men. Um, but in general, like these tests from the very beginnings have been used to um, both grant people admissions into schools and also to grant them not essentially money, but yeah, like admissions and affect their scholarship money. I, I knew it was uh, the SAT was created by eugenicist. I didn't know his name. I also didn't know like the specifics of like what he explicitly stated in his own like publishments like I just thought you know he was a eugenicist but he wasn't like outspoken about it uh, and it was like a hidden part of his life but he was a staunch staunchly uh, proud eugenicist and I don't know very interesting the 
they chose this man. Yeah, and very interesting that we don't talk about this, that yeah. we don't know this, that we take the SAT and the ACT blindly without understanding its origins, and that it still exists. Honestly, you would yeah. think that <laughs> you would think that this is like a major problem. I mean, obviously, it's evolved over time, but even that being its origin seems like a reason to move forward in terms of how we're testing people to get into schools. Yeah, totally. Um, but jumping ahead 20 years, so we go into World War II has just finished, and the SAT was taken widely in the years following World War II as a way to identify scholastic aptitude among veterans. So these soldiers were returning to receive an education thanks to the GI Bill, which we have mentioned in the past episodes, and we've talked about how the GI Bill really only was in existence for white soldiers who fought and mm-hmm. black soldiers who fought in World War II were not granted all of the educational benefits of the GI Bill. Yeah, the GI Bill really, I don't know, has it impacted education way much more than I thought it would. But yeah, so this this is the this is really the first influx of students going into higher education that we've seen. Up until now, it was mainly rich people, the occasional middle class superstar, but now people from all types of socioeconomic backgrounds had a pathway to education and because you had this incredible amount of applicants uh, that colleges were not ready to uh, evaluate they didn't really have the capacity to give their attention to the ways they normally reviewed applications you know they couldn't read all the essays with the same level of uh, scrutiny as they would so they started to rely more upon the SAT because it was the fastest cheapest way to uh, identify aptitude, quote unquote. Right. And that that makes sense. Also, going back to the GI Bill, like not only did it have such a big impact on education, but with these people now getting an education, we've talked about how important parents education is. So it's Mm -hmm. just like this generational this generational shift that's happening with the GI Bill. But around this time, a professor of education at the University of Iowa by the name of E.F. Lindquist argued that it would be better to assess what students learned in school and not whatever aptitude means. He basically wanted to go back to the methodology of testing pre-SAT. He designed the ACT in the 50s and first administered it in 1959 to match the Iowa high school curriculum. Yeah, and this makes a bit more sense with regards to equality because it's judging students on a standardized curriculum but without the hullabaloo that comes with judging someone's intellectual potential which like sounds and feels and is very wrong and also is just inherently biased so the sat eventually came around to this methodology but a lot lot later um and we'll talk about that in a second but these two tests were the big powerhouses they still are the big powerhouses Um, And eventually the SAT and ACT scores became interchangeable and there wasn't like a preference for the SAT as it was back then. I didn't know that about the ACT, how it was like a deviant from the SAT and trying to, you know, fill in the gaps for what the SAT wasn't accounting for. Around the 70s and the civil rights movement, the college board had a reckoning. College access was a large speaking point for many civil rights leaders, many of whom were educated, but some who were not. These leaders were able to force the college board's hand and make them reassess what it means to be a college, what it means to admit people to college and what college admissions test means, especially one that more and more students are taking right then and there. And more students were applying during that time more than ever before. Yeah. And the college board started to react more to social movements. They moved away from their racist eugenicist history. And from the 70s to the 2000s, there were a lot of changes to the grading curve, uh, the mean score in an effort to make results more affordable and to make results more equitable. We won't cover those specifics because they're really boring. It's just like, how do we what's the middle score? Is it is it 1280? Is it 1240? It's a lot of math. Um, But one thing that is important is that this was a, a pivot in college boards sort of social mission Um, and one that kind of leads to it hopefully accepting the responsibility of what it means to be a leading factor in college access totally and although we're skipping all of those like very menial changes that you were talking about it would be interesting to find out like how they evaluate a mean score but let's jump to the 2000s and this is when the sat changed from 
a 1,600-point system to a 2,400-point system. Where did those extra to 800 points come from? There was a required essay portion. And um, thinking about what this meant, it means that it allows students to um, have an open-ended section that colleges really get to know the student's ability to think and express themselves as opposed to solely multiple choice. Yeah, and, you know, it's somewhat of a good idea. I mean, the multiple choice sections have a lot of tricks that you can use to increase your probability to choose the right answer, even if you don't know the answer. So if you have a private college prep tutor, you're learning these tricks. You can get by the multiple choice section without actually knowing the answers, and it can lead to falsifying your aptitude, quote unquote. Uh, but the problem is, even though the essay is meant to be more of an equalizer to get rid of those tricks, if you have a private college prep tutor, you're probably also learning tricks to the essay portion. Exactly. So in 2005, which wasn't too long after the essay portion became mandatory, Pavan Skrikredi found a trend. Uh, Skrikredi was the MIT writing director. He found a high correlation between the essay length and the essay score, where the longer the essay was, the higher it scored. He argued that simply by gauging the length of an essay without reading it, his model could correctly predict the given score 90% of the time. And then when he actually read the essays, he found that the essays were full of factual and grammatical errors. Yeah, how awful. And the National Council of Teachers of English criticized the writing section of the test because it damaged the writing standards of students and teachers in the classroom. They basically said that writing teachers were training their students for the SAT and not using and not teaching skills like revision, depth, accuracy. Uh, and instead, they were prioritizing long, formulaic, wordy pieces. Uh, they were basically training students to be bad writers. Right. And we talked about before how essays could not be standardized. But if there's a rubric involved and if there's definitely like a point system that the graders are looking at when they look at these essays, it is a standardized mm -hmm. form of testing. And I've definitely seen the impact of, you know, just bad writing. Like, I think it's very full of fluff. Yeah. And definitely like that has to do with some of the things that are taking place inside the classroom. Yeah. It's not just that these tests are, you know, training people. There's a whole education system around it. But I think this emphasis on length and or at least maybe not an overt emphasis on length but yeah you think like the longer the better instead of like more concise thoughts more like get to the point and make your point um yeah so about 10 years after the 2400 point sat the college board released the new sat in 2016 which went back to the 1600 point system um, the company accompanying this launch, the College Board also partnered with Khan Academy to provide free SAT prep. Yeah, this was a pretty monumental change, and they also changed the curriculum. So after many decades, the SAT finally decided to start reflecting high school curricula as opposed to aptitude. This was a result of David Coleman, the new CEO and president of the College Board, who came uh, on board in 2012. One of his big goals was to reform the SAT to reflect common core standards to level out the playing field that affluent test takers so widely dominated. Right. And he was one of the architects of common core curriculum standards. So that shift looked like the reading section being more closely focused on comprehension and analysis as opposed to randomly knowing upper level vocabulary. Um, there was also got rid of this required essay portion in exchange for an optional essay portion. Do you know which one? You took yeah I took the SAT. I did take the writing section because I was a good writer and it yeah. definitely bumped up my score like a significant amount yeah I I I also think I, that I took the essay portion no I know that I did but I don't remember there being an option honestly I feel like you had to you had to do the writing but also I, thinking about, I took the ACT with writing and that was uh, that was optional oh, okay but the SAT was also I think optional I, I could be wrong don't remember, but I'm also thinking about Common Core curriculum, which we've talked about, I think, that, like our very first episode and something that I was really familiar with because there was a big push for it, at least in the schools that I went to. And it kind of is like the antithesis of standardized testing, at least mm. in my perspective. Mm -hmm. It's very much like how can you analyze things and explain them in your own words and make arguments and um, structure your thoughts. It's almost like a way of thinking. And it definitely isn't you know, ABCD way of thinking. Yeah. So it's interesting that 
um, Coleman was trying to kind of reconcile the two. Like, how can we have both standardized testing and common core curriculum? Yeah, we'll see some of his hypocrisy, uh, which he acknowledges a lot later on. <laughs> but uh, so this new SAT, as with every iteration of the SAT, was not perfect. It met a lot of backlash. A lot of critics and researchers stated that high school grades were actually the better predictor of college success than standardized test scores. David Coleman even admitted this himself. Interesting. Okay, going back on his word or maybe just like, <laughs> or just maybe admitting it, I don't know. Um, right, only 20% of the teachers see the college, college admissions test as fair measure of their, the work of their students have done, which I think is a very telling statistic. Mm -hmm. of the people that are teaching the kids in our society are like, these do not measure our aptitude or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think that's a telling thing that should be taken into account in terms of these tests. Yeah. But the test also makes students incredibly anxious and do not accurately reflect a student's learning capabilities or where they came from. If Coleman truly values diversity and equity, then it would take more than changing the score or the removal of an essay section. Yeah, and that's where the adversity score comes in, uh, which I, I definitely knew about. So in May of 2019, the college board announced that the SAT would calculate each taker's adversity score using factors like the proportion of students in the district receiving free or reduced lunch. It looked at the level of crime in the neighborhood, average income, diversity in the population. Basically, the higher the score, the more adversity the student faced. And this score was supposed to aid the test score to help admissions officers consider the full picture and be more equitable, but... Yeah, I don't remember this. Naturally, there was a strong backlash as people were rightfully skeptical of how complex information could be conveyed with a single number. It could also be weaponized politically. So pretty quickly, the College Board abandoned the adversity score and instead created a tool called Landscape, which provides the same details to admission officers, but without calculating a score. Yeah, other than the, the complicated uh, methodology of like quantifying it. It is a pretty good thing, especially pretty recently. Um, and in 2021, the college board announced that the SAT would no longer offer the optional essay section after the June 2021 test. So uh, right now, you cannot take an essay section with the SAT because the essay, after all, became weaponized by the affluent as a way to further dominate those that did not go to a prep school, didn't have a private tutor. And so all in all, these changes are actually pretty good and heading in the right direction of equity. It's a positive thing hearing that, but also it seems as though every time there has been a change, it somehow becomes weaponized in a different way yeah, for yeah. the same reasons. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad they are trying, but yeah, definitely complicated. So that was the history of the SAT. Let's move on to part three, how universities use standardized testing to discriminate and exclude. This is pretty obvious and perhaps worth being said. Uh, these exams are used for college admissions. And with any admissions process, there is an equal process of exclusion. So if these tests are going to play a role in admitting people depending on their score, they're also going to play a role in excluding people that don't score high enough. Right. And along with admissions, like we mentioned a little bit earlier, comes financial aid decisions. And there's not necessarily a direct correlation between how high you score in an SAT and how much financial aid is offered. But sometimes there may be. Um, but test scores can gain certain scholarships and certain opportunities. And also, if one person's getting financial aid, that might mean another person isn't getting this financial aid. Mm -hmm. um, so considering this, let's talk about some of the disparities, whether it be racial or socioeconomic, regarding test scores. Yeah, okay, so more selective institutions require high SAT scores for entry, and there are even bigger race gaps at the top of the score distribution. Of those scoring above 700, 43% are Asian, 45% are white, compared to 6% Hispanic or Latino, and 1% Black. Meanwhile, among the scores between 300 to 390, so this is on the lower end, 2% are Asian, 23% are white, compared to 43% Hispanic or Latino, and 26% Black, according to the College Board 2020 annual report. And the race gap in test scores is not new. Asian and white students consistently have outperformed Black and Hispanic or Latino peers on math sections 
um, of the SAT. In 1996, the gap between the mean score of black students and that of white students was a 0.91 standard deviation. There's been a range of efforts to reduce this gap, but in 2020, the gap is still 0.79 standard deviation, which is very, very disproportionate. Yeah, and this doesn't really mean anything uh, because intelligence and aptitude are not related to race. This is especially true when you look specifically at the written and verbal sections because it's the math section that brings up Asian student scores. Uh, but so if you kind of remove that, you start to see sort of the same trend, which is that what it could mean is that a child's environment and culture may have a bigger role in their test taking abilities. Right. And one of the ways that a test could be written in a biased way that favors white people is by using language that is very easily understood by white people but not those who are more familiar with Black vernacular English and dialect spoken in a lot of Black households. Similarly, if you come from an immigrant background, you may not be hearing certain phrases or words that are pretty clear to wealthy white students with a lawyer father and a business mother. Yeah, exactly. And basically, what we're trying to say is the race gap isn't necessarily real because it's not just about race. People use these test scores to justify racist stereotypes without considering all the other factors that influence test scores. Family income is a much better predictor of standardized test performance. So really, the race gaps in test scores reflect the race gaps in income and wealth inequality across race in the U.S., Right. Reducing income gaps could have a huge effect on narrowing the racial gaps in test scores. Also, one's parents' education could play a significant role in someone's test scores, but that is also tied to income and wealth, too. Yeah, and income inequality affects the education that someone receives in K-12, through like we talked about in previous episodes. It's all That's going to affect how well you score on the test. But there is also that huge test prep industry that only people of certain means have access to that we've been talking about this whole time. Exactly. For a half to fee, companies like Kaplan and Princeton Review promise to help improve your score, not so much by helping you grapple with underlying math and reading comprehension, but by teaching you hacks to the test itself, like straight up saying when guessing an answer B or C instead, like guess B or C instead of A or D, which I totally remember doing. I don't know if it was one of these review boards mm-hmm. that told me to, <laughs> but I do. I do actually remember this coming up in like SAT guidebooks and I would always choose C. I don't know. I don't know why I would do that. Maybe <laughs> it said that in the book, but did you have a default answer that you went to? Yeah, I always chose B because my name was Brian. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> Or if it ever says like all of the above, I would instantly go to that if I didn't know the answer. Yeah. Which I still do to this day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's it's also crazy. So the Princeton Review vice president told the Washington Post, and this is a quote, our philosophy has never been content oriented. We teach people the tricks. Wonderful. Great. Love to hear it. (laughs) Um, There are free programs out there, to be sure. Students who use the College Board's official SAT practice on Khan Academy, which is free, for 20 to 22 hours, averaged improvements of 115 points over their PSAT scores. That's what the company officials had said. There's nearly a double um, 60-point average gain for students who didn't use the free test preparation. Yeah, and I, I'm i glad that that was a resource. Not that I really used it, but I, that's the first thing that I recommend to a lot of people that are trying to study for the SAT because SAT books are so expensive. And if you can just do it on Khan Academy, it's, I don't know, it, it really levels out the playing field for those that are uh, that see the worth and value in like an SAT. Right, and also like the test prep books cost money, but people who can afford a tutor that costs a lot more money that's going to Mm -hmm. improve your score if you have in-person help but there's also the opportunity to take the SAT more than one time and for the SAT I believe it costs around like $55 if you can take it four times and choose your best score to send to schools you're spending like four times as much as the uh, as someone who can't afford to do that so that always felt incredibly inequitable to me if people are not only willing to take it more than one time but you know it just doesn't it doesn't seem like 
it almost like feels like it defies standardized testing. Mm-hmm. It's like you can take this standardized test. Some people can afford to take it more. <laughs> Some people can only afford to take it one time. That it just doesn't make it. It doesn't seem like. I mean, I'm not. I'm not pro everyone take one test, put so much energy into one test and stress yourself out. Yeah. But also, that seems so so unfair. Yeah, it's like. It, we're not saying everyone should take a high stakes one time test, but everyone should have the opportunity to take it multiple times if needed. Right. Because that's right. how it should be. Right. Uh, which you can sometimes do like you can get SAT test waivers, but mm-hmm. there is a limit to those. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. OK, so story time. Just to fully dispel the race gap, uh, I found this really interesting study. So buckle up. Uh, there's a super interesting study in 2003 conducted by Roy Friedel. And he was super excited about this new statistical technique. It was called differential differential item functioning. You don't need to know that, but it was pretty cool at the time. Basically, Friedel divided test takers into groups based on their verbal scores because, like we said, math is there's a lot of there's a lot of wrong things about just looking at the math score. So he took the verbal scores and he took the students that made a score of 200. Then he took a, the students that made 210, 220, all the way up to the top score of 800. He used every score possible. And then he looked at how different ethnicities performed within that score. Uh, so like the makeup of ethnicities for a score of 200 versus the makeup of ethnicities for the score of 800. And it was all this information. It got aggregated. And what he found was that white students tended to do better than black students on easier questions. Okay, fine. But what was interesting was that black students tended to do better than white students on harder questions. Uh, it was a slight difference, but it was a bit, it was pretty significant uh, statistically. And Friedel argued that if tests were weighted differently, where harder questions were worth more points, black students could have a jump in score of about 100 points. And why does this matter? It just, it completely destroys the idea that someone can be smarter or less smart because of their race. Thoughts on this interesting study? That is a really interesting study. I think it dispels that idea for sure, but I also think it speaks to how these tests are written for certain groups of people to succeed. And maybe Mm -hmm. at this point, it's not perhaps intentional, but... It, it originated this way when we're talking about the SAT. We talked about the history of it. And that's obviously fed into, regardless of the changes, has fed into what's taking place present day. As many shifts as there has been, these questions are worded and used in a certain way that produce different results against different groups. Um, that's that's very interesting. And I do wonder how much this study has affected changes that have been made or not have been made regarding these tests. Yeah, I think they, I I mean, definitely they are trying to veer away from those questions that if you know the trick, you can get them. Um, I know a lot of the tricks in the math section um, or or whatever where, well, I won't get into those tricks. If you want (laughs) to view them, just look it up on YouTube. But there are a lot of really interesting tricks that I still use today because they're still they still come in handy in college. We can put the YouTube link in the show notes <laughs> if anyone's interested. If people need these tricks that yeah. Brian's talking about, I might want them. <laughs> um. All right. Part four, the current state of affairs. So let's talk about what things are actually looking like today. Um, especially now that the pandemic has caused education and testing to change so much and educators and students and parents and colleges are just thinking more critically about the purpose and the necessity of these tests. So starting with K through public, K through 12 public and private schools, according to the National Assessment of Education Progress, student scores have remained across the board higher than half a century ago, but new results showed that overall declines took place for 13-year-olds since um, 2012, and the most significant drops concentrated among the lowest performing students. And 13-year-olds seems like a random number, but I believe that they, I believe they test at, I think, 9-year-old, 13-year-old, and 17-year-old. So this Mm -hmm. is like the mid-gap. 
Um, so we're seeing a decline in terms of student performance for a very pivotal age group. Um, I mean, it's like the middle, it's what you learned from elementary school and middle school, and it's what you're going to take into high school. Mm-hmm. So it's not not a great thing that's happening, yeah. or at least that we're seeing in terms of these test scores. No, for sure. And, and the report also notes that scores have fallen for Black and Latinx students since 2012, uh, but they've remained flat for white students which is widening the racial achievement gap. This year also revealed a gender gap as nine-year-old boys' math scores stayed steady while girls' scores fell compared to 2012. And once again, the nine-year-old seems like a random number, but that is like the first age that they administer these standardized tests. It's coming Mm -hmm. out of elementary school, at least towards the end. And we're thinking like, oh, maybe it's because this year was really tough for students online, but these tests were administered in the 2019-2020 school year. So that was before the pandemic and schools closed. And once students switched to online learning, experts and I think students and parents all agree that further declines in education have followed, will follow. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Um And dropout rates associated with high-stakes tests are disproportionately high for Black and Latinx students. So uh, in Texas, while a 0% dropout rate was reported as proof of the success of their system of high-stakes testing, it was later found out that Black and Latinx students had instead just disappeared from the rosters of school officials in order to boost test scores. So I don't know. That's horrible and fraudulent and just the worst. Right. So it's like even with this data, when you find out that uh, the data is not even looking great to start out with, and Mm -hmm. then you find out that it has been manipulated to look even better than it actually is. Yeah. That's like never a reassuring thing to find out. (laughs) Um, uh, And then also in Massachusetts, when they implemented a high stakes test based accountability system in the 1990s, um, there was witnessed a 300 percent increase in dropouts. And um, with the input, And that was like with the implementation of a graduate exam and it saw a 4% decline in graduating students. And I think that's just to add on to what you were saying about what was happening in Texas. That's not necessarily something we see today so much, but it's something to think about how these tests, especially if you have them at the end of um, your time in K through 12 public education, can totally ruin all of those 12 years that you spent not being able to graduate graduate from high school. Not that that's like always the... Mm -hmm. The reason to go to school is to get a, you know, degree, a high school degree, but or a high school education. But um, yeah, not not good numbers in terms of what these tests mean at the end of at the end of high school. Yeah. And, you know, high stakes testing is being challenged. Uh, I talked about this in some in a few episodes a while back, but like standardized testing versus standards based testing is hugely different. Standards-based testing is, you know, you can retake it as many times as you need in your in your class, in your semester. And if you don't get the grade you want, then you work towards it and you work with your teacher and you can get that score that you want. And it doesn't have to be a one-time thing because that's not how the real world works. Like you don't just you don't just fail and then that's it. You know, you have chances in your workplace to redo things. And it's I don't know, the high stakes thing. And I've seen this a lot in Asia too, is like in Asia, you have a one-time test that decides your entire life. Like the college you go to, the career you get because of that college, it is all predetermined for you based on one test. And that's why mental health in Asian countries are just, it's declining and it's so crazy. So high stakes testing is not the way to go. Right. And you can be a great student, but having testing anxiety is a real serious Mm -hmm. thing, which we didn't talk about in this episode. Um, But yeah, I mean, it it really if if the stakes are so high for anything, I mean, I remember taking my driver's test. And even though like you can take it as many times, like feeling like this was the most important day Mm -hmm. of my life. (laughs) Um, It was so scary and intimidating. And you obviously are going to make faults and not perform well if that's the kind of stress that you're under. Yeah, I failed my driving test the first time. I was convinced I was going to. I'm honestly pretty <laughs> sure that the guy just wasn't paying attention. There's no way that I should be allowed to drive. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to what has fluctuated with SAT scores. So generally, critical reading, or what we now know is just reading, 
has taken an overall decline, whereas the math score has risen uh, slightly over time. There are small fluctuations, but this this trend is pretty clear. ACT scores, unlike SAT, have remained pretty stable over the past several years. So something is something is uh, going right with the ACT. Um, and nobody really knows why we see to make more progress in math than reading. But one likely cause, which we keep coming back to, is that a lot of students learn math in school while literacy come from habits at home often. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that this is the, known as the math verbal SAT gap, if you want to look this up later. Also, students whose home language is not exclusively English scored close to native English speakers on the math section, but they scored far below native speakers on the verbal test. So the influx of immigration could also be a factor in this uh, math verbal gap. And the achievement gaps between students uh, from different socioeconomic and racial backgrounds show no sign of closing, which is true for both the SAT and the ACT. But more generally, from 2006 to 2016, overall SAT scores fell a total of 34 points down in each of the three sections tested. Yeah, and this leads us to an interesting discussion about universities and test-optional admissions, because that's become increasingly popular Over the last two years, it was definitely popular last year. And I think we can partially credit the pandemic for that. It definitely catapulted higher education into this conversation. Um, A a test optional college lets students decide whether or not they want to submit test scores with their application. Most test optional schools will consider SAT or ACT scores if they are submitted. Uh, But the focus on other factors they believe are stronger predictors of a student's potential to succeed in college, like GPA, class rank, personal essays. Um, A new survey of colleges conducted by Maguire Associates found that colleges that have done test optional are improving access broadly for low-income and underrepresented and first-generation students. So the survey found that these institutions looking to grow their first-year enrollment have been largely successful, but at the same time, many are struggling to contain their discount rate, which I guess makes sense. If you're going to have more students, you'll have less financial aid to give out. Yeah. And the survey also found gaps between public and private institutions as far as what criteria was used for admissions instead of test scores. So in fall 2021, most indicated a strong reliance on high school transcripts and grade point average, but respondents from public institutions were more likely than those from private institutions, a 51 to 29 percent ratio, to make more use of essays and personal statements. Many schools have assessed what testing truly gives them, generally finding that higher scores correlate with higher first-year college GPAs and with college graduation rates. Admission experts suggest that going test-optional can benefit colleges and students alike. As colleges go test-optional, they tend to receive more applications overall and form a more diverse class of candidates, which is kind of what all of the things we've just been saying allude to. And these schools are no longer a rarity, especially after the pandemic. It's becoming increasingly popular. Um, And this makes sense for the socioeconomic and racial disparities that test scores that we discussed earlier. Also, the share of SAT test takers whose first English, first language is not English has gone up, and those students may have um, a bigger disadvantage in the reading portion of the test. So immigration is also a factor. If um, students who are scoring lower on these tests and it's because they're not written for them to particularly understand or in a way that they can score high but are very interested in going to these schools may choose to go test optional and these schools may want that to be the case to have a bigger Mm -hmm. diverse class of people coming into their schools. Yeah. And even before this, some schools were already reconsidering testing policies before the pandemic hit. Uh, But the pandemic definitely changed individuals' access to these tests, which is why that was a big reason why so many schools were scrapping them. Notably, the University of California system announced in March that it would go test optional for students applying for fall 2021. And a court ruling in September later barred the system from considering ACT or SAT admissions decisions in this cycle at all because many students were unable to access the exams. So they basically shifted the UC system into a test blind status, not a test optional status. 
Wow. I mean, a court case is a huge deal, but also even the UC system making that move yeah. is, is that's intense. That's insane. Um, and then in this May, a new plan was approved by the Board of Regents, which extended the test optional policy through 2022. Um, in addition, as we said, the entire UC system suspended the standardized test requirement for in-state applicants in the fall of 2023 and the fall of 2024 for the ACT or the ACT. Um, the test requirements will be eliminated beginning in 2025 if those tests are not replaced by a new test and the system is being developed currently. So I think there's a lot that's going to take place over the next few years that's going mm -hmm. to determine the future. I think we can't really predict anything and especially it's going to change a lot depending on, you know, how the pandemic changes over the next few years. Uh, but this shift is kind of exciting to see. I mean, it's yeah. been like 100 years that this testing has been in place, um, over 100 years, really. And this is huge, I think, for higher education and admissions and diverse classes of people. Yeah. And uh, well, we'll talk about this maybe later. <laughs> but like, I think, yes, College Board depends on the SAT for a lot of income. If for some reason uh, or somehow by miracle, all the universities are like, actually, no, we don't need SAT scores because they're just a, a, a test for rich people. Um, maybe the College Board could go into expanding their AP services. Maybe they could like shift their mission and like provide more classes to high school students. Like, I don't know, like when I was going to high school, I always wanted an AP uh, music history course or like more offerings and like a like a AP sociology course which I think there is one but it wasn't massively massively offered so I don't know this is super exciting in terms of like potential changes and shifts in the world um yeah right like what this could mean I mean it's like hard not like I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because right, right. we see time and time again that you know things go back to how they were go back to how people want them to be um, depending on who has power, who has money. But I think that there's tons of opportunity for more access. And then, like you said, like more access to AP courses, potentially, if the College Board shifts its focus there. It's really interesting. Yeah. So it's important to note, uh, if you're a student and you're listening to this and you might be applying to schools in the future, test optional does not mean test blind. Test blind means that colleges won't look at scores even if a student submits them. But if it's test optional, they will, they may look at your score if you do submit it. So just make sure to check your application requirements at each school to understand the testing policy. Yeah, and I think it's definitely important to keep in mind um, admission experts and testing organizations agree that it still makes sense to take the SAT or the ACT, which is a complicated take because I do understand that, you know, even the USC, UC system, I mean, is is shifting to test optional, but there's still plenty of schools out there that require tests. So you still might want to take the test. But of course, these organizations say that because this is their right. job. This is their <laughs> livelihood. So it's a complicated take. I do see the benefits in still taking tests. Like there's a lot of considerations yeah. to be had. Yeah, they also argue that it makes sense to send scores to one college, but not necessarily another, depending on how you stack up based on other applicants. Uh, so you can check that on the college websites and just see statistics about other students' test scores and see like, oh, would this be higher than average and could that help my application or am I just, you know, lower than everyone else and I have a better shot with just my GPA? Right. And if you're a student and you get a really great score after taking it, I mean, there you go. You could you could send it even to a test optional university just mm -hmm. to, you know, have them consider it. Uh, even if that's not something that you hang your hat on, it might be a good number to have in your pocket if you want it, if you love taking tests or if you're a yeah. good test taker. Um, and there's likely going to be like a school on your list if you're applying to colleges that does require tests, like we said. There's the shift, but it's definitely not taking place everywhere with all schools. Yeah, where I hope the, the system goes is to just stop requiring subject tests. Because I had to take three subject tests to apply to like three schools on my list. And those are rough and they are hard. And I don't know what it provides. If you can just look at my AP score for chemistry, why do I need to take an SAT chemistry subject test? Uh, so I hope subject tests go away. Yeah, I 
don't remember taking subject tests and I feel bad that you say that <laughs> and you had such a terrible time. I feel like maybe I just fully don't remember so much of this <laughs> testing experience. But um, I think it'd be really interesting. Like, I think we always end episodes with this point of, you know, being conscious of the history of these tests and what's going on behind the scenes and also like really critically thinking like, if you don't have to take them and you really don't want to, maybe there are opportunities not to if there's schools yeah. that are test optional. But like we said, there's a lot of reasons to, you know, continue to have kind of the safety net of a test. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk just a little bit, any concluding thoughts about what you think these tests, both the ones that exist K through 12, but also the SAT, ACT, and the ones we were mentioning, you know, post-grad, what they say about how, you know, our education system or theories around education yeah i mean i have two concluding thoughts one is uh our emphasis on standardized testing is pretty emblematic of just like cost efficiency in the u.s and just everything's an industry everything's a business and the sat and act obviously don't want to die they want to you know have a thriving industry so they're they're doing whatever it takes to keep their test alive even if it means completely changing to what it used to be, which is good, but also you're hanging on to the past, which may not be so great. And the emphasis on multiple choice and 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 those type of testing techniques is it's just all about money. And it's all about, you know, treating students like their numbers instead of treating students like a whole person. Um, but then the other th my other thought is. I'm very hopeful of changes that will be made with standardized testing in public education. I am way less uh, hopeful about post-graduation tests. Like the MCAT, the LSAT, these tests are not going to go away because those are so deeply ingrained and rooted uh, industries. And like the, the AMA, the American Medical Association, is so just, you know, they are so power hungry and so like money hungry and it's just crazy because they are never going to let that MCAT with its $1,000 prep books and its thousands of dollars application fees and its thousands of dollars test requirements like they're not going to let that go because that's a huge source of money for them and it's it's just really sad how uh, corrupt the, the, the later industries are and just I don't know I feel a lot more hopeless uh, in in my <laughs> stage of life you know <laughs> mm -hmm. no that's true are you considering taking any of these tests going forwards any of the post-grad tests um i may take the gre for graduate school but not anytime soon or i may take uh i've been floating the idea of law school now that i'm taking a law course and i really love it so but I don't know. Right. But it's it's so interesting how thinking about even going into law school or graduate school, like I think the first thought that comes to mind if I were to consider those things, which at the moment isn't a consideration, but potentially in the future would be the test. It's like this yeah. is step one. I mean, it, it. I mean, of course, you would have to think about that as a career and everything. But the first thing that hit would hit my head was I mm -hmm. have to take this test. And I, I totally agree that I, I am hopeful that there's going to be shifts even if there's not, you know, direct shifts, although we are seeing them in terms of ACT, SAT, um, there's a shift in like the published conscious around it. Like I think a lot of people are questioning why were we taking these tests in the beginning? Yeah. Like if they're not being considered this year for college admissions and obviously people are still getting into schools and a di more diverse, you know, populations getting into schools. Why were we taking this test after ever? So mm -hmm. just having those questions be a part of the conversation is really exciting to me. Um, I totally agree with you that the other tests very much institutionalize these mm -hmm. post-grad tests. And I don't see them going away anytime soon or transforming anytime soon. And I think that's something that I wouldn't want to like stress listeners out about who are just going into college, but for people who are in their last year, it's definitely a big consideration. Yeah, for sure. All right. That was the SAT and <laughs> standardized testing in our college application season. Um, good luck to anyone who is going through that right now. My thoughts are out to you. Yeah, um, especially good luck to, to you people taking the subject test because, again, <laughs> those are so much worse. Bad memories <laughs> for Brian. Yeah. Um, also, I would say everyone take your, your Briggs personality test. Isn't that mm -hmm. true? Just to find yeah. out if you haven't taken it already. Yeah, let um, us know if you're an advocate. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, also, take your flu shot if we're just doing reminders. Like, get your flu shot. It's <laughs> flu season. It's again, it's COVID season. Yeah. <laughs> Call your mom too while you're at it. Just do all the things. <laughs> okay. Uh, moving on to the book segment for this episode. I've been reading a lot of poetry lately because a lot of my readings in class are super heavy and long. So I try to mix it up with poetry because you can always just read one poem and feel very affirmed or that you, you know, you don't feel like you're committing to a whole book. So in case anyone else is going through that with midterms and finals, I thought it'd be good to um, share poetry this episode. So earlier this year, I read Claudia Rankin's book, Citizen and American Lyric, and I highly recommend it. Uh, Claudia Rankin is the author of six poetry collections, three plays, and numerous video collections. And this work, Citizen and American Lyric, recounts mounting racial aggressions in the 21st century daily life and in the media. Um, and it's moments in which herself and others from colleagues to professional athletes have been reduced solely to their race. Um, some of these encounters are unknowing and some are intentional offenses and they take place everywhere all the time. This work is both essay, image and poetry, all pointing to the individual and collective effects of racism in our contemporary society, um, often named post-race society, but obviously like we know that that's not true. So once again, I recommend uh, Citizen and American Lyric by Claudia Rankin, and I would also check it out if you're interested in poetry or want to get into poetry, and it's like a multimedia work. There's a lot, um, there's a lot of images in it as well, so it's cool to see that kind of form take place, and it's a pretty fast read, so... That's the book segment for this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Diversify Our Narrative, or you can go to diversifyournarrative.com where you can find resources, educational content, and more. Special thanks to Feel the Ambiances for our music. And don't forget to rate five stars on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify.